0: Hello, and welcome to Connections, the podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Jordan. If you're a usual listener to our podcast, first of all, thank you for listening, but you know that we usually talk to friends and leaders and strive to learn something new about ourselves, others, and Jesus, things that will make us better leaders and followers of Christ in our world. Today's podcast is a little different because I'm not interviewing anyone. I'm just going to share a few things with you. Every year, Mops International chooses a theme verse to focus our study and all of our resources around. And this year, our theme verses are 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. So as we've pulled together resources and as I've helped lead my own Mops group, I've spent a lot of time reading and studying and praying over these verses. And I wanted to share a few things I've learned from it. And then I want you to share some of what you've learned, too. I'll let you know how to share back with me at the end of this episode and in our show notes. I'm going to share a lot of verses as we go, too, so I'll list those in our show notes as well. Now, like many of you, I had 1 Corinthians 13 read at my wedding. I'll never forget my sweet gray-haired grandpa standing and reading this for us. It was very meaningful for me. And I definitely want those attributes of love to be lived out in my marriage. But Paul didn't write this letter to Corinth in the hope of strengthening marriages. It was written to the church at Corinth because they were acting foolish. And Paul felt the need to remind them that the kind of love God has for us and the kind of love he wants us to have for each other isn't proud, doesn't give up, doesn't rejoice when others fail, It suffers long. Now, when we think of love, we usually say that the opposite is hate. But when you look at what was happening in Corinth, the opposite of love seems to be pride. Pride that was self-serving and focused on what I need and keeping track of all the times you messed up. But that's not love. So let's think for a minute about what the perfect love God has for us looks like. In the beginning, God created us, and we lived with God in paradise. There was no sin, no shame, no separation. That was the original plan, the perfect plan. However, in Genesis 3, the story takes a bit of a turn. Humanity disobeys. Sin enters the world. And sin, this disobedience to God, always leads to consequences, and it always leads to separation. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and the original plan was no longer perfect. But it was because of humankind, not because of God. Bob's has a book that we published a couple of years ago called Proclaim Peace, and I want to read a part of a devo that's in that book, because I think it beautifully describes what happened to the original plan and what God did to restore it. So fast forward through the Old Testament narrative. We see the same story over and over God's people disobey, God saves, God's people disobey again. In the early books, the separation between God and his people is not huge. God has verbal conversations with Noah, Abraham, and Moses. God visibly leads his people through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, protecting them from their enemies and delivering them to the promised land. After all of this, however, God's people are not satisfied. We want a king, the people of Israel would demand from God. God warned them of the downfall that would follow, but God's people were determined. They wanted a leader that looked like them, talked like them, smelled like them and hurt like them. So God complied with their request. Israel had many kings who showed incredible leadership leading Israel to become one of the strongest and most admired nations in the world. These same kings, however, led to the downfall, split, and eventual dispersion of the kingdom of Israel. With every passing story, the gap would get wider between God and his people. And with every selfish king, every prophet who was ignored, every time again Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the chasm grew. This was the state of the world over 2,000 years ago. The most chaotic, restless, hopeless time in the history of God's story. It's at this point in the story, at the end of the Old Testament, when we arrive at what is known as the 400 silent years. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, God did not speak a word to Israel for 400 years. No voice in the wind, no prophets, no judges, no kings, no more promises, no hope. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's Galatians 4.4. It was in the midst of the most hopeless time in history that the announcement came. Do not be afraid. We bring you good news of great joy for unto you a savior is born. The multitude of angels would sing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It was on that silent night that God did the unthinkable. Creator God, king of the universe, got up off of his throne and moved toward his people. This gap had been separating them long enough. The peace of God was such a foreign idea, a forgotten reality, seemingly a fairy tale, but God had a plan. As God moved toward his people, he moved from a God who could sympathize with his people to a savior who could now empathize with his people. He was getting his perfect plan back on track, but it required a perfect savior who ultimately was the perfect sacrifice. You see, that's the kind of love God has for us. When God says that love doesn't give up, he knows what he's talking about because he proved it over and over. Love doesn't give up. Love didn't give up on us. Jesus came. He lived among his people. He died. He rose. And then he left the Holy Spirit with us. He never gave up. And he calls us to love in the very same way. Now, Jesus was perfect and we are not, obviously. But even though we aren't perfect, God still calls us to walk like Jesus walked, live like Jesus lived, and love like Jesus loved. So let me ask you this question. What do you want to give up on? Now, I'm not talking about the extra activity that fills up your calendar. I'm talking about the thing that God has placed you right in the middle of and that he's directing you towards, but that you keep thinking it's too hard. It's no fun. And so I want to give up. Remember, love doesn't give up. Here's an even harder, more personal question for you. Who do you want to give up on? Who is that person in your neighborhood, your mops group, or maybe even in your family that is so hard to be around, so messy, so difficult, or maybe just so annoying? That person that you just can't seem to get through to. That person that you just have nothing in common with. Who do you want to give up on? Well, here's my advice and the example that Jesus lived out. Don't. Don't give up. Love her. Love him. Be patient, kind, long-suffering. With that person in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. But before I do, I want to remind you about what was happening right before this in Scripture. The people of Corinth were arguing over whose gifts were better. My gift of preaching is more valuable than your gift of hospitality. Or the fact that I'm a teacher is better than your way with numbers. That's the attitude Paul was addressing here. And every version of scripture that I've read this passage from, it's absolutely beautiful. But I'm going to read from the message right now. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back but keeps going to the end. You know what is so interesting that I learned while I was studying this chapter? 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't mention God once, doesn't mention his name, but Paul's purpose is to show humans what God's love looks like lived out in their own lives. Paul is calling out the Corinthians on their stuff, on all their problems, and he's showing them that the real issue at hand is not whose spiritual gift is greater, but rather the issue is their lack of love for each other. That's the root of their problem. You see, at our core, I think each of us knows that we are made to be loving. That's why we get so upset when we hear about violence and hate in our world because we know it just isn't right. Let's look a little further into 1 Corinthians to chapter 14, verse one. 1 Corinthians 14 starts out by saying, follow the way of love. Some versions say pursue love. The message says go after a life of love. Paul says basically, and this is my paraphrase, (laughs) you've heard about love. You've seen it lived out in Jesus. You've experienced it in yourself. Now follow the way of love. Live it. Pursue it. Don't just wait for it to happen. Don't just assume it will. Don't think that if you don't love well, someone else will do it instead. No, Paul says here, and Jesus says over and over, pursue love, follow it, live it. Let's look at a few more verses that talk about love. John 15, 12 to 13. This is Jesus talking. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. First John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Colossians three twelve to fourteen. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So love is what makes compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness possible. If we went backwards a little bit to 1 Corinthians 1.10, we would see what Paul's heart is in this letter that he's written to the Corinthians, which echoes what Jesus' heart is for us. Paul said, let there be no divisions among you, but that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. He wanted believers to treat other believers with this kind of respect. And that's what Jesus wants of us too. But he also wants us to treat those who don't yet believe with this same kind of love. When people see us treating others with that kind of love, they see Jesus in us. Even if they don't yet believe in him. Because when we treat others this way, we get the opportunity to tell them more about Jesus. About why we've chosen to love other people. You see, what you believe about love will show up in your life. Love becomes your logo, it becomes the thing people remember about us. A logo is a graphic mark, an emblem, or a symbol used to identify a company, a product, or a brand. A logo communicates the unique identity and vision of the thing it represents. A good logo is memorable. It differentiates you from everyone else and it fosters loyalty. Now, as soon as I say the word logo, something popped into your mind, right? Some image that represents a company or a brand. And it has meaning built within it. When people see the logo, the belief system, the values, mission, and vision of the thing represented are what people remember and what they tell their friends about. Jesus tells us that love should be our logo. As his followers, the things that should differentiate us from everyone else, the thing people should notice and tell their friends about is how much we love people. That love for people, the love for us, is what drove Jesus to do all he did. And it should be what drives each of us. In John 13, Jesus and his disciples gathered together for Passover Jesus began the evening by washing their feet, which was usually the job reserved for a servant. But Jesus told the disciples that he wouldn't be with them much longer because he was going to be betrayed. And then he gives them a new command. John 13, 34-35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He said it three times in two sentences. In this particular passage, Jesus was talking straight to the disciples, to his followers. Love one another. Stop arguing over who's bigger and better and more important and love one another. Let love be what the world remembers about you and how you treat each other as fellow believers, unified in mind and mission. And then love others. At the beginning of This verse that I read, John 13, 34, it starts with a new command I give. But the command to love isn't really new, right? The Ten Commandments given hundreds of years before were all about how we should love God and love each other. The word new in this passage doesn't mean that it is new as if it never existed before. The Greek word used here means new in quality, superior to the old. The old Mosaic law, including the Ten Commandments, required strict obedience, rules no one had ever been able to adhere to perfectly until Jesus. It's through the old law and our inability to keep it that we see our need for a Savior. We just can't love like that on our own. Jesus tells his followers, I have loved you and you have watched me love others. Now love each other like that. How do we do it? How do we love someone that much? John 15, 9 answers that question about how do we love someone that much? As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That's Jesus talking. Let me read it one more time. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The only way to love extravagantly like Jesus did is to abide in his love. When we abide in him, when we live in him, we don't just pretend to love like him. We actually love like him. Love is not something we just talk or think or have good feelings about. It's something we do. And if we love Jesus, it is something we can't help but do. Because it becomes part of who we are. This is no ordinary year. And the kind of love Jesus wants us to have for each other is not an ordinary love. So here's my prayer for you, listener. Let's adopt the foot-washing attitude Jesus displayed and not be afraid to get dirty when it comes to serving each other. Let's show up in the world, forfeiting our own agenda and privilege and loving the strong, weak, old, and young, welcoming the different and embracing the troublemaker. Let's let go of the idea that lifting someone else up brings me down. Let's put more energy into supporting others and less energy into being offended while we offer dignity to others and how we look at them and how we talk about them because that is what Jesus did. And that is how everyone will know that we love him. Friends, let's let love be our logo. And I'd love to hear about what you're learning. If you're a Mops or Moms Next leader, or even if you're not, let us know what you've learned as you've listened here or as you've studied 1 Corinthians 13 on your own. You can email me at leaders at Mops.org or go to Mops Leaders on Facebook or Instagram and tell me about how you've let love be your logo this year. Thanks for listening, friends. And I can't wait to hear your story.